Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word and we hold it in high regard. May your words speak to us and teach us and pierce our hearts and our minds and bring us to a fuller and a greater understanding of who you are. So lead us to you this morning, Father. Thank you for your word and thank you for this church. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, so we're, we're in a series through the book of Colossians, and we're just calling it new. Uh, it's one of the things that happens to our lives uh, that, that, that sets everything in our lives apart when we meet Jesus, and we embrace his love, and we repent, and we follow him, is that we're made new. And you can see that theme going all the way throughout uh, the entire book of Colossians. And, and, and we, we kicked off this series last week looking at chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 8. And we just talked about the importance of the authority of God's word in our life. And, and, and really how what, what Paul has written here is from Jesus to this church, i.e. to us. It's not just good advice. It's not just worldly wisdom. It's from the mouth of God to our hearts. And when we, when we see the scriptures that way, we begin to hear the word of God. And, and by faith, the, the word becomes alive in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. We begin to see things that we never knew about ourselves, true and untrue. And that changes everything about us. And so th- this, this letter was written to this church in Asia Minor. Paul had actually never been to the city of Colossae. Not that we have any record of. But he preached the gospel in Ephesus, which is about 100 miles away for two whole years made some disciples there, and they went back to their city, and guess what they did? They took the gospel with them. And you know what came out of that, taking their gospel back to their city? A church. That's what happens when we carry the gospel with us, is it's planted everywhere we go. And this church uh, had heard the gospel from this guy named Epaphras and some others, uh, uh, companions of Paul's, and now they were starting to doubt what they had heard. Because there were some people that, that had come into the church and said, you know, you've just got the simple gospel. You don't have the, the fullness of God. There's some other layer, some other knowledge that you're missing that you need to have. And Paul comes in and he begins to reassure them fully. That's what we looked at last week. He says the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and growing. The, the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus on behalf of sinners that we embrace by faith is the whole package. That's it. We can't go beyond it, but we can go deeper into it. And so he begins to pray. As we look at this text today, he, he's, he's beginning to pray for them. It, 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 um, it's a 218-word sentence, is this, this prayer that he prays for them, a, a robust sentence to say the least. We're looking at a few verses of it. But what we see in this is, is that, 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 that the kingdom of God is for us, and Jesus has done the work to make us his. Now, 
uh, as we get into it, I, I, something really stuck out to me in Colossians chapter 1 uh, when, I, when I was reading um, verse, uh, I think it was verse 10, uh, where, where he talks about uh, to walk in a, in a manner worthy of the Lord. It stopped me in my tracks because I thought, wow, what, a, what, a, um, uh, what a, a thing to live up to. What a statement to live up to. How do I know if I'm walking worthy of the Lord? How do I know if I'm worthy of what Jesus has done? And it just kind of stopped me in my tracks. And so basically what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be we're going to be praying this prayer that Paul prays backwards because the power to walk a life worthy of God comes from God, what God has done for us that he mentions in the end of this prayer. Now, before we get in, let me share a little story with you. Um, you know, my family, just like yours, has had its share of drama over the years. Uh, not much at Christmas this year, which was awesome. Uh, so my dad has two boys, uh, myself, and I have a little brother that is seven years uh, younger than me. He's not really a little brother anymore. He's a bigger brother, but he's younger than me. Let me say it that way. Some of you have siblings like that as well. Uh, so this one time, my little brother, uh, he just, uh, he was a senior in high school. He just decided to stop going to school. And, and I, you know, I, I'm trying to understand his position, but he, I think he expected there to be no consequences for stopping going to school. You know what I'm talking about? So he, he stops going to school, and about a month into it, the, uh, the guidance counselor sends a letter to the house and says, hey, you're, you, you can't come back to school this year. You've missed too many days. Well, it's his senior year. Now, he had a lot of, of things going on with friend groups and challenges that, that, that some people never face in life that have been very difficult for him. But, but he calls me, uh, and, and he says this, uh, hey, Ryan, I got suspended. I can't return this year. What should I do? And I said, what do you want to do? <laughs> and, and he says, uh, he says, well, I'm calling you um, so that I don't have to call dad. I don't have to tell dad. And I'm thinking, well, no, that's not how this works. You have to tell dad. Let me rephrase that. You need to tell dad by 6 o'clock tonight. If you don't, I'm going to tell him. And he's like panicking. He's like freaking out. And you can, you can sense the levity in my voice. He's, he's gone on beyond this. It was a serious situation at the time. But, but he, he, he uh, tells dad when he gets home, from work, and then at 6.05, my phone rings, and it is my father. I pick it up, and he is like livid like any parent would be in this type of a, of a situation. And uh, he says something to me that, that, I, that I won't forget. He says, Ryan, you know, at first it's like Jonathan was the object of his wrath. <laughs> but then we start taking it down a level in our conversation. He says, Ryan, I feel like a failure. I, I feel like I had one job with him. That was to love him and to help him get to the next phase of life. And I feel like I failed in there. So, so his, his behavior and how he was frustrated with my brother and brother deserved it um, was really about something that was going on in his own heart. And, and I said something that I would have changed how I said it, you know, in hindsight. But he said, I feel like a failure. And I said, that's because you are. <laughs> that, that came out wrong, Dad. Hold on. Hold on. Um, but what, I was, what we got to in the conversation is that we are all failures. We, we've all blown it beyond repair. Um, and and that we, we've, we're, we're bleeding past the Band-Aid. You know, we, we've all caught ourselves in those positions in life, but also in our position with God. Th this is the relationship that we cannot repair on our own. We cannot do enough to put ourselves in right standing with God. So when I read 
those words about walking worthy of God, showing my worth to God, I just stop and say, I can't do it. Maybe you're in a similar place this morning, and if you are, you're in the right place. In fact, if you are in any other place, something has malfunctioned in your understanding of the truth of who you are and who God is, because you cannot do it. You cannot walk worthy on your own. So as we pray this prayer of Paul's backwards today, I start asking myself a few questions when I read these verses. So let me summarize kind of where we're going today with a big statement, a big idea, if you will. And it's this right here. Because Jesus qualifies us for the kingdom, we get to exhibit the qualities of that kingdom. Because Jesus qualifies us for the kingdom, he does the work, we get to exhibit the qualities of that kingdom in our life. So as I'm thinking about this, I read verses 13 and 14. If you've got, uh, if you've got a Bible, flip it open there. If not, I think it'll be on the screen here. Colossians chapter 1, it's in the New Testament. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says this at the, at the kind of the, the, the tail end of the part of the prayer we're praying today with Paul. He has delivered us. This is God. God has delivered us from the domain, we could use the word kingdom, of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom, the domain of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. This is where the power comes. Now, to understand how we get the power, how we get qualified for that kingdom, and how our lives now reflect the king whose kingdom we live in, we've got to understand what the kingdom is. It's a, it's a, it's a big concept. The kingdom is not a, a, a word that we use often in our everyday language unless you're into like Downton Abbey, Right? I mean, you just don't use those, we, we don't live under a monarchy, so it's hard for us to understand what a kingdom is. It's hard for us to understand the beauty of what a kingdom is. Because here's the deal, a kingdom is only as good as its king. And so, I love, I'm a simple guy from Kentucky, I love simple things. So let me just give you the definition from the kingdom, from the Jesus storybook Bible that I love. In it, here's what Sally Lloyd-Jones writes. She says, the kingdom of God is everywhere Jesus is king. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is everywhere that Jesus is king. Now, now Jesus' kingdom is very different than the kingdom that we are born into. It's very different than the kingdom that we find ourselves in in this world. And, and, and we experience it daily. We experience the conflict, the jolt, the tension every single day, even on an internal level. There's this great conflict between uh, what we want to do and where we find ourselves, who we want to be and who we find ourselves to be. The desire is to do what is right, yet... Um, we don't have the power to do it. Anybody else with me on this? 
I know what's right. I know I want to do it. I know I should do X, Y, and Z, but I keep doing A, B, and C. You know, here's the, here's the beautiful news. You're, you're too scared to raise your hand, so I'll just raise mine. It's fine. But here's the beautiful thing about this is that the Apostle Paul, who, who met with Jesus, who saw Jesus, who was commissioned by Jesus to write much of the New Testament and, 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 uh, and to expand the kingdom to the ends of the earth, had the same exact issue. <laughs> it's, it's, it's good because in Romans 7, uh, the scriptures talk about this, this idea of Paul, he says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Those are his words from Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. If there ever was a verse to describe my life, this would be it. I have the desire to do what's right, but I often find myself not having the ability to carry it out. And why is this? Because life is war. I want you to say that with me. Life is war. Life is war. There is a war that is waging all around us, and it's between these two kingdoms. It's between the kingdom of darkness that Jesus says he's come to deliver us from and the kingdom of light that Jesus comes to reign in and through us by. It's, it's, it's war. There's this war Waging, and it's not necessarily a physical war all the time, but it is for the throne of our hearts. It is for our affections, it is for our desires, which ultimately become our behaviors. That's what the war is for. And the influences of this kingdom of darkness are the world itself, the flesh. So the world that lives in us, the world, the world that lives outside of us, the world that lives in us, which the Bible describes as the flesh, and the devil himself. We actually uh, have an adversary who wants nothing more than for you to walk in darkness. That is his whole desire, his whole plan for your life is for you to walk in the dominion of darkness all of the days of your life, to be blinded uh, by your sin, and to never see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is his entire plan for your life. Pretty dark, pretty scary, right? That is what is actually going on. To make His desire is to make your life about anything other than Jesus. At its essence, it's this war between the kingdom of the enemy, the kingdom of Satan, and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, do you believe this? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, uh, in verse, starting in verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So in other words, you're not going to be strong in and of yourself because I never called you to be that. But be strong in the strength of his might. And here's the strength that he's going to give us to be strong in. It's this. Continuing on in verse 10. Put on, to put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand. Stand, not fight. Not handle it all on your own, to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, we don't wrestle primarily against things that we see. The person across the cubicle from you is not the devil, okay? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present 
darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It sounds like a Lord of the Rings movie, right? I mean, it's crazy. What he's saying is that there is so much more going on in the world than what we can see. There's so much more, and there's so much influence over your life in those places. And Jesus has come to reign even there. There's not one square inch of your heart of your life that he doesn't want. That's the battle of the the kingdom. And Jesus himself would say that his kingdom was not of this world. It's not in the things that the world celebrates. It's a different kind of kingdom. Jesus came to establish another way of living than the one we're born into believing. And that should cause us to pause and think about our lives. To think about which kingdom is advancing in my hearts, in this decision, in this sphere of my life. Because Jesus wants it all. In fact, that is what he came to do, is to deliver you from that dominion, that domain of darkness that wants to steal joy from you, to steal everything from you, to kill you, and to destroy you ultimately. Jesus came and he has power to deliver us from that. That's the good news of the gospel. He's done everything to deliver us from that kingdom. The kingdom, if I could define it a little bit more complex than the the children's Bible I told you about, would be this, is the spiritual rule and reign of Jesus in the hearts of his people. Now, when we think about kingdom, we think about physical things. What turns into physical things and behaviors and characteristics and qualities, but it starts as a very spiritual thing in our hearts. And that is why people misunderstood Jesus so much. It's because he didn't come with force, but he came as a suffering servant in, in a humble form to reign in the hearts of his people. How does that kingdom get into us? That's the question I find myself answering because now that I see what the kingdom is and the battle that's waging all around me for the affections and desires of my heart, and when I see that battle, it's a little bit scary unless you know the one who has the ability to deliver you from the domain of darkness. So I ask this next question. If that's what the kingdom is and God came to deliver me from that kingdom and put me into his kingdom, how does that happen? So I ask this question, how does our Father qualify us for the kingdom. Let's look again at Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14 this time. The scriptures say this in Paul's prayer. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Qualified you. Made it possible. Done the work. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain, the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. He has qualified us. You need to underline that in your Bible, your smart device, whatever you've got, right? Get a tattoo on your arm. I'm just kidding, Megan. Don't get another one. Um, (laughs) I love her tattoos. Um, a chapter from my own life comes to mind as I, as I think about this. He has qualified us. Uh, so I was, on, I was on the golf team in, in eighth grade and like, like barely on the golf team. So the way it works is the good players get to play in the real match. And then the coach sets up a practice match for everybody else. And so I was always on the practice match. But this one particular day, I, 
I think the flu went through the school, and I, somehow I ended up in the real match. And so I'm sitting on the first tee at Bobolink Golf Course, at, you know, out in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. And it's a, it's a par four that has a dog leg to the left, and, and I'm thinking, and here's the other issue. The driving range is over to the left. Okay, and this is like my, my ball, every time I hit it, like has a magnetic pull to the driving range, which there are millions of balls over there, and it's impossible to find your own. So sure enough, I hit it and duck hook it over to the left, and it's in the driving range. And, and then there's my, my uh, partner that I'm paired up with. He's, he's from Danville, which is a rather prestigious school. And he, you know, they've got their own uniforms. I've got, like, like not a uniform on. And, you know, he's got, like, Titleist clubs. I've got, like, the clubs that actually have the real wood on them. Like, that's what I'm playing with. And, uh, and so he's just kind of looking down his nose. I'm a little self-conscious about it. And sure enough, you know, I can just hear him saying, you know, he hits it right down the fairway. I can hear him saying, yeah, here we go, you know. So anyway, I get over there to my ball. It takes me about 15 minutes to find it. And sure enough, it's right behind this really big pine tree. And, uh, and I don't really, I'm not able to, like, hit it up over. It's about 100 yards over. So I'm just thinking, you know, go big or go home. We're going straight through this thing. And so I pull out my three wood and just, just blast it right through the tree. I can't even see it. It's a blind, te- a blind shot behind the tree. And, uh, you know, I'm running over to the side, holding my club, seeing where it lands. And then I see it land. And I kid you not, it's like 18 inches from the hole. Like, I am so excited. You would have thought I won the lottery. I'm like running up with my clubs. They're all falling out of the bag because I'm like screaming and yelling, which you're not supposed to do on the golf course. And, and uh, I get up there, and then the guy, he looks kind of shocked, but then he kind of has this grin on his face. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't think anything of it, so I go straight up there get my putter out of my bag, and I just can't wait to put this thing. It's going to be my very first birdie that I've ever gotten. And I get up there and, and put it in, and, and I hit it, and the guy looks at me, and he goes, oh, okay, so uh, you got a bogey on that hole for that two-stroke penalty for hitting the pin. And I'm thinking, you have got to be kidding me. you got to be kidding me. This guy is just standing over here waiting for me to mess up, waiting to disqualify my shot. He could have easily said, hey, bro, don't forget to pull out the pin. He's just waiting for me to blow it. Now, here's the deal. Some of us think about our Father in heaven like I think about that kid when I look back. We think that God is just looking at us, waiting for us to disqualify ourselves from the race, waiting for us to just blow it on a technicality. We're gonna, and so we, we think we're going to get to the end of time, and we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and he's going to say, oh yeah, should have took the pen out, buddy. We think about God like that, and so we think that he's just waiting to disqualify us. But what we see from the text today is that he's very different than that. He's very different than that mentality that we have about God waiting to disqualify us from the race of life. It's it's not who he is. It's not in his nature. It's not who he is. So let me ask you this. How would your life be different if you believed that God was actually for you? It wasn't a race to try to be like God, but he got to be God and you got to be you. And you got to receive God's love and live in God's love. How would your life be different? That he's actually for you in the transformation. The places that you want to see changed in your life, he wants to see changed more. The places that you struggle in life, he's struggling with you, struggling with all of his might, as Paul says in Colossians 1, 27, as he works powerfully 
within us. How would your life change? Because what the text says in Colossians chapter 1 is he says he's done a few things to qualify us. He's done work by sending Jesus to qualify us finally and forever. For all eternity, we're qualified if we're in Jesus. And how do we know that? Because he's absorbed the cost. He's paid the penalty. So he, it's, the text says he, he redeems us. So th- this is a cost that he incurs to bring us back to himself. He, he not only makes us in his own image, but he buys us back after he's made us through the work of Jesus. He pays for our sins by sending himself to live the life that we cannot live. He redeems us, and he doesn't cut any corners on your redemption. We live like he does. We live like he kind of covers us about 85% of the way, and the rest of the 15% is kind of up to me. And when we live like that, we don't get to live fully in the redemption of what Jesus has done for us. We don't get to fully enjoy it because we won't let ourselves really see ourselves for what we are as, as people who cannot contribute one iota to our salvation. He redeems us. He, he doesn't flinch when he sends the payment of Jesus to us to pay for our sins. It's his plan from the beginning of time. He will not love you better when you get better. He will not love you less when you seem to be less. His love remains because the payment is full and final and it covers it all. He redeems us. So what we get in that redemption is we, the way he describes it in Colossians chapter 1 verse 14, it says redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Somehow the forgiveness of sins is what sets us free to live in the final redemption of who Jesus is. But this is how he's able to forgive us because he's paid for the sin. It's not like he's just kind of, you know, made a, a, a used whiteout in the books, you know. Oh, uh, we'll just see if it shows up somewhere else, you know. No, he's, he's paid finally and fully for us. He's forgiven us. He's incurred the cost. He's absorbed the pain of our sin. And when we, when we, sing, we sing about the cross because that's where Jesus absorbed the pain of our sin finally and fully. An innocent man taking on the full wrath of God. That's why we sing about the cross, because the cross is where we see our sin forgiven. And this is why Jesus, when he describes what the Christian life is like, he says, you've got to take your cross up daily and follow me. Like, the the cross is not something that's just done for you, it's something that's done to you. And so when we see forgiveness, a lack of forgiveness in our own lives, unforgiveness in our own lives, it is... It is a place or an area of our hearts where Jesus is not reigning because the cross is not something that's been done to us. We're we're withholding the redemption that Jesus has paid. We're saying, you know, Jesus, I don't need that. I got this one. But if he's forgiven us fully, how can we not forgive others? He forgives us, and we get to feel his pleasure on our lives when we forgive others and forgive ourselves. We get to experience the redemption that we read about. And it becomes ours. And lastly, he redeems us, he forgives us, he transfers us. It's kind of a funny word. Transformation is different than conformity, though. It means he's taken us. If you, if you think about the, the judgment of God, and you, 
oftentimes I think about a courtroom, okay? It's like God is the judge, and uh, I've got to present my case before the judge. Well, basically, what he's saying about the work of Jesus is that Jesus has transferred us out of the courtroom. We're no longer in the courtroom. We're no longer pleading our case because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's on the witness stand for us every single hour of every single day through every single sin and every single struggle and every single moment of our life, he is advocating for you if you believe in him. Amen? It's such good news. He takes us out of the courtroom. He transfers us into a different kingdom. And it's this kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. We're transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of Jesus. And and that is where we experience the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives. But here is the issue. We live caught in between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of this world most of the time. And why do we do that? Because we don't believe this verse. We don't believe that he's actually transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son through forgiving us. And so we don't let ourselves experience the forgiveness of God. We don't let ourselves experience the redemption of God. And so we stay in the courtroom. I love this verse from Matthew, these five verses from Matthew chapter 17. This is uh, what is known as the, uh, the, the, the transfiguration. So if you've got a Bible, flip over to Matthew 17. If not, it will be on the screen. Th- these verses cha- changed my life. Not, not when I just read about the knowledge that they gave me and the historical accuracy of them concerning Jesus and his relationship with the Father. But when I begin to think about the application of them for my own life, listen to this. The Father uh, is, is having a, ho- a, a holy huddle up on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus brings James, uh, Peter, and John with him, and then God brings uh, Moses and Elijah. So it's like this party with them up there up on the mountain. And here's how it goes down. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, meaning they got to see him as God. They they didn't just see him as a man. They saw him as something more. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And, and Peter said to Jesus, <laughs> typical Peter, Lord, if, it, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make us three tents. We can live here forever. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. And, uh, and, and, and while Jesus just kind of ignores him. Um, and, and while he was still speaking, um, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice came from the cloud. And it was God, the Father in heaven, the one who sent his Son to deliver us from the dominion of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have the redemption, forgiveness of sins. It was him that spoke this. And here's what he said about Jesus and his role and his work in the world. He said this, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Because God calls his son Jesus a well-pleasing son. And here's what that means, a son that dad is always and only happy with. That's what it means to be well-pleasing. Always and only happy with your son. 
Because Jesus is that to our Father in heaven. And because Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says that we have died and we are now hidden with Christ in God. That we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Friends, you are a well-pleasing son. You are a well-pleasing daughter to the Lord of the universe because of the work of Jesus. Why can't we live in that more? Why can't we believe that we're well-pleasing in Christ? Colossians 1.10, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And we look at that as a ladder to climb, a test to live out. But our Father in heaven sees it as something that has been done in eternity past. You've been transferred, you're already well-pleasing, you get to walk worthy. It's the work that I want to do through you. We get to walk worthy before the Lord. For this to be applied to our lives, we've simply got to repent and believe it as gospel, as truth, as the truest thing, truer than any experience that you will ever have on this, this earth and what it will tell you about yourself and others and, and your circumstances. It is the most true thing that you could ever believe. That you are a beloved son or daughter of God because you're in Jesus Christ. And nothing can change that. Nothing. And when we see ourselves like that, walking worthy, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is, is, a, is a joyful responsibility that we get to experience as we follow Jesus and let his rule and his reign overcome our lives as we walk in this world. So we get to experience the qualities of the kingdom as we walk with him. And when this happens, because I'm new, because I belong in his kingdom, we live them out. So let's, let's read all of this text, all five verses. And, and in light of the fact that we're praying them backwards, we can read them forward now. And now, so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, Paul says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. But you've got to be filled with the knowledge of his will. You've got to be filled with the knowledge of what he's done in order to walk a worthy, well-pleasing life. You've got to do that first, he says. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, not yours, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. He's qualified us, and we've been talking about that. So let's just... I'm just going to make three quick points about the qualities of the kingdom flowing in and through our lives. The first one is this. We're filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, here's the deal. Our minds are filled with knowledge. We have knowledge about what we believe to be true and what it means for our lives. This is why whenever someone asks a question or they mention something that you're not sure about, you immediately do what? Fact check them on Google, don't you? You pull your phone out, you let me check that out. Our minds are filled with knowledge. The question is, which knowledge are our minds filled with? Because if they're not filled with the knowledge of his will through his word, how can we walk worthy of his will in this world? How can we do that? We've got to fill our minds with the knowledge of what God has done for us. Because we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the the kingdom of light, our minds need to be reprogrammed. We don't just need an update to our phone. We need a new, whole new software, a new hard drive. We need everything new 
Because Jesus has delivered us out of this old thing and brought us into this new thing over here, this new reign and rule. But so many times we just treat it like a software update, you know. Okay, God, I guess I can dig in for a little bit while this thing updates, and then I can get on with my life. And it's, it's different than that. We need to be completely reprogrammed to live, not seeing the kingdom of God as a ladder that we climb, but as something that God has done for us in eternity past, and we get to live out of as his well-pleasing sons and daughters. Why did Jesus spend time with untouchable people? Lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, the sick. Why did he spend time with people that were untouchable in society? People that, 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 would, that the society would look at and say, this person can offer me nothing, they're, therefore they're worth none of my time. Why did Jesus make a beeline for those people? Because he's building a different kingdom. It's, it's a whole different thing that he's, that he's doing. God's will for us is to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Because this will determine which kingdom we build. What is programmed into our mind will determine which qualities and characteristics we manifest through our behaviors and even our thought life. Now this, this idea of being filled is this, like this deep and clear knowledge of God. So what that indicates is that we've got to do work. We've got to do work. To get this deep and clear knowledge of God. And not only that, we've got to do work in the context of community. Jesus has not saved you to be by yourself. He's not. If you think that's what heaven's going to be, you floating up on a heart by yourself, you have the wrong picture of heaven. That's not what it's going to be like at all. You're going to be more fully and finally in the family of God than you ever have been. And it's going to be, it's, something inside of you is going to be made more alive than it ever has been because you get to experience the fullness of joy by fully and finally being the family of God. And we get a foretaste of that every single week that you choose to set something else aside to, to prioritize being with the family of God. Whether it's on a Sunday morning like this or whether it's in the context of a different kind of a, a group, a missional community or a discipleship group or maybe you've got a men's prayer breakfast or whatever you've got. You get to experience more of God, and he gets to make the knowledge of his will more clear and deep in your life when you prioritize that. There's no other way to get this clear and deep knowledge of God than through his word in the context of community. There's no other way to do it. There's not some special, you know, knowledge that the, 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 the heretics in Colossae were saying you had to have. There's not some special experience you need to have before that happens. No, we've got to do the work to put ourselves in front of the word, under the word, and in the context of community. Get in the word with people. Do it. You won't regret it. Secondly, this, bearing fruit in every good work is the next thing that he, that he says will, will be a quality of your life. Now, fruit is about evidence. I can tell you that I'm an apple tree all day long. Until you see an apple, you're not going to believe I'm an apple tree. Am I right? Fruit's about evidence. Paul is saying that, that, that our lives will bear fruit. It's almost like a promise. Ephesians 2.10 says that, that before the foundations of the world, that God prepared good works for us to walk in. That, that, that he prepared things that we would do with our lives. And what Paul is saying that in Jesus Christ, those works that we put our hands to will bear fruit. It's not a question of if, but when. They will bear fruit. 
over, over the holidays, Megan and I had the chance to go uh, up north and to see some of our former students that were in our student uh, ministry in Indianapolis. And one of the beautiful things that we saw was uh, what, what um, we saw the fruit, the evidence of the work that we put in over the four years that we were there, which started back in 2008. 2008 to 2012, we, sure, we saw some evidence in those years, but guys, we saw way more evidence when we were there in the beginning of January. Because you know what? When a farmer plants seed, he plants the seed, and he has to walk away from it, doesn't he? He's saying that the things that you think are having no effect now, if you're walking in Jesus, they will bear fruit. It is a promise. The, 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 not every seed bears fruit, as Jesus would teach, but you're going to see fruit from your life if you invest it into the works that he's called you to do. Every Christian is a, is a minister. Every Christian has a role and a responsibility in this new kingdom that we've been transferred into. There's, there's not, there's not the, the laity and the clergy. There's only in Christ. And because of that, all of us get to bear the fruit of the kingdom of God as we, as we seek it with our lives. Are we planting the seed of the gospel and trusting it to bear fruit? Or are we planting something else with our lives? Because whatever you're planting, you will see. That's the promise, right? It's, fruit is evidence. Whatever you're planting, you'll see. Are you planting the truths of the gospel into your children into your family, into your coworkers, into your neighborhood? Or are you planting something else? Because what you plant, you will see. You will reap what you sow, Paul says in Galatians 6. We'll see that. So that's like a, that promise is like a double-edged sword for us. You'll, you'll reap what you sow. And so we, we trust that as we, as we seek to bear fruit, as we, as we plant the kingdom with our lives, that it'll bear fruit. It's a promise for us. Lastly, uh, to joyfully be strengthened with endurance and patience is this quality of the kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus is building in our midst is not an instant kingdom. It's not a pop-up tent or a drive through meal for McDonald's, okay? But so many times I expect it to be that. I want it to be like the kingdom yesterday, right? It, it, instead, it's growing steadily and surely in our midst. So, so Paul prays, that since we've been qualified to live in this new kingdom through what the Father has done through Jesus, we can now walk worthy. And the way to walk worthy in these circumstances is to walk joyfully strong. And this will be seen through our endurance and our patience. I am a painfully impatient person, okay? Some of you are the same way. What this tells me about myself is that impatient people are ultimately weak people. That's what he says here. To be, to be strengthened with endurance, which manifests itself in patience. Impatient people are weak people. Whenever I am impatient, I'm not trusting, and I'm grasping, and I'm trying to cling to other things that God has not clearly put in my path, and I'm, I'm trying to go out of my way to make something happen. I'm impatient, and I'm weak in God in those moments. I'm weak in the Spirit. Because God is infinitely strong and he has proved his strength by rescuing us from the dominion of darkness and raising Jesus from the dead, we see that there's nothing that we can do. Yet when life catches us by surprise, what happens is we forget the power of his might. 
we immediately king back, we go back into like old kingdom mode, right? We, we, we like downshift and we go into that and we gotta say, I got to make it happen. But when, when, when life stings in these moments, we jump to this conclusion that God is clearly not with us. So let me intervene by doing X, Y, and Z because God clearly isn't going to do it himself. In those moments, we're displaying not the strength of his might in our lives through patience, but in patience and the weakness of our flesh. Let me ask you this as we close. What are you waiting on today? What are you waiting on? Are you waiting on healing? Are you waiting on a husband or a wife? Are you waiting on a job? Next assignment? Are you waiting on a miracle? Or maybe you're just waiting on joy. I had a guy tell me last year, he said, man, I just, I know the Bible talks about joy. I've just never really had it. What are you waiting on? And what would it look like in this season of your life to joyfully pursue Jesus and trust him for what you're waiting on? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you've made us new, that you're making all things new, that you've delivered us from this domain, this dominion of darkness, and you've, you've transferred us into the kingdom of light, kingdom of your beloved son in whom you're well pleased, and we're just well-pleasing sons and daughters. Thank you for that, God. Thank you. I'm convinced, God, that if we were to lean more fully into the end of the prayer, then the beginning of the prayer might make more sense in our lives. Would you help us to see our redemption in you and to walk in it with faith-filled hearts this week, Jesus? I pray for those in here that, um, that, are, that are just maybe hearing the gospel, the strength of God in our weakness, maybe, maybe for the first time, maybe... Maybe they haven't heard it much, and, and, and maybe they're wondering if this could really be true in their lives. I pray that you'd give them faith, uh, the power of your Holy Spirit, to believe what's been written. That we really are new, and your kingdom really is real. And I, and I pray that you'd help us to grow this week, and how your kingdom quali qualities might be manifested in and through our hearts and lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.